Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zivi. I'm the host, Zivi Owens. I am an author. My latest is blank, pub date March 1st, a novel. I'm also a podcaster, obviously, a publisher, a bookstore owner, and so much more. If you love books, you're in the right place. In fact, we call it the Ziviverse, or really, the LA Times called it the Ziviverse, and we're going with it. Go to ZiviOwens.com to learn more and follow me on Instagram at ZiviOwens. Roxana Robinson is the author of 10 books, including six novels, three short story collections, and the biography of Georgia O'Keeffe. Four of these were New York Times notable books. Robinson was born in Kentucky, but grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. She attended Bennington College and graduated from the University of Michigan. She worked in the art world, specializing in the field of American painting, before she began writing full-time. Her novel, Cost, was a finalist for the NEBA, was named one of the five best fiction books of the year by the Washington Post, and received the Fiction Award from the Maine Publishers and Writers Association. Her novel, Sparta, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the BBC and won the James Webb Award for Distinguished Fiction from the USMC Heritage Foundation and the Fiction Award from the Maine Publishers and Writers Association. Her fiction has appeared in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Harper's, Tin House, Best American Short Stories, and elsewhere. Her nonfiction has appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Book Forum, Harper's, and elsewhere. She was twice a finalist for the NBCC Balakian Award for Criticism and has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation. She teaches at Hunter College, has twice served on the board of Penn, 
and is a former president of the Authors Guild, where she continues to serve as a member of the council. Her new novel, Leaving, is out from Norton. Welcome, Roxana. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Leaving. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Your book is so beautiful, and I am so captivated. The sentences that you write are gorgeous, so much so that as I was walking around New York yesterday, even walking past the entry to a subway station, like the way you wrote about it when you said something like, you know, the the sidewalks opened up and like you just take everything like a simple subway entrance and make it into something poetic and beautiful, which changes how I sort of view the world. So thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's, I mean, any writer is, you know, because you're a writer and you know what you're trying to do is set down your own experience and make it something you can share. And that sort of illuminates your reader's world and it's, it illuminates yours. That's why you're trying to transmit it. So it's exciting to hear that it's being transmitted. Thank you. It's transmission accepted, received. <laughs> okay. Tell listeners what your book is about, please. So it's about two people, Sarah and Warren, who had a relationship when they were in college. They split up sort of because of a misunderstanding and just the way those things happen in college. They were quite far apart and things, it it fell apart. And they both married other people and really didn't see each other for decades. Then they run into each other by chance at the Metropolitan Opera And they're both 60, and he's still married to the same woman, and she has been divorced, and her husband, her ex-husband died. So she's single. He's he's not. And everything starts up again. So it's a story about connections between people. It's a love story, but it's also about a different world. I mean, I've we've all read many, many love stories. I teach Anna Karenina, I teach Emma (laughs) Bowery. So I love love stories, and, and they're sort of what makes the world function, keep moving as as people's attraction to each other. But I hadn't read many love stories that are set in the second half of someone's life. And it's so, so different. I mean, when you're in your 20s, you are a free agent and you can both decide to move to China and learn the language or become, you know, environmentalists. But when you're in your 60s, you have a place. Whatever your life has been, it's there. It's part of you. You have established something. You've established a job and colleagues and friends and a place that you live. And to uproot all of that for someone else becomes very complicated. And you have to measure what you have against what you want. And then there are people around you who may not allow you to be so free. And in this case, they both have adult children And they realize that their adult children feel that they have a right to play a part in this relationship, which is something really a young person doesn't have. Even if you are, if you have kids in there, you know, that are six and eight and 10, they may be furious if you get a divorce, but they can't stop you. But if you have adult children, they take it, they can take a very powerful place in your life. So there are all sorts of things that happen in a relationship that takes place in this part of your life that I wasn't seeing written about and I was seeing it around me and I thought it was so interesting that I needed to set it down and transmit it. Wow, really beautiful. Well, not only do you have the love story in the present, but 
even when you write about it in the past, it seems, you know, it can appeal to people who are used to the, you know, younger love story. You still have all of that. And, you know, even some simple gestures, like when Sarah feels the weight of Warren's body on her and they're like trying to, you know, lean on the couch in a certain way to offset the weight. And just like those little moments are still there. So you still check that box. But there are some discussions even, not even the love story, but even just the dialogue between Warren and Sarah, where they talk about having kids and how before you before you have kids your conversations are one way and then of course once they're like the the power dynamic shifting like you said in their involvement but also in the way they occupy your life and how you're trying to get their attention when they're older as the parent versus the child desperate for your attention as a child, which I, you had a whole section about that, that I was just like, yes, this, I kind of want to like, <laughs> you know, as a, you know, I don't know, it's just so spot on and well, well said. Yeah. Well, children are the big presence in our lives. They're the big other. And we want them. We love them. We love having them in their lives and they're a tremendous nuisance. You know, whatever you want to do is more difficult if you've got three toddlers hanging on your legs and crying and so you they're part of your life in a in a wonderful way and they give you enormous joy but they also complicate your life so in the beginning you're sort of trying to your conversations are about what you're doing as an adult and with your job and your colleagues but then later and your 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 kids aren't really part of the conversation because you think your real life is is elsewhere is being a professional whatever you're doing and then things change. And then you start talking about your kids and what they're doing and they take over the conversation. You're so proud of the fact that your child got into Stanford or your child has won an award or, and you bec- they become more and more dominant. And then when you step away from the world, Sarah and, and Warren are still working, but they, they no longer are planning to run the world, which they might have done when they were 40. So their children become more and more important. And you realize, then you realize that your children are not paying attention to you, that they (laughs) are not asking for your attention. So it's wonderful. I mean, I love examining families from every aspect. You also paint a picture of a single older woman who is totally happy being alone, which is great because I feel like there's this common misperception like, oh no, she's alone, da da da. And you were in this book, you're like, no, 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 this is amazing. Like I can come in and it's quiet and there's just this beautiful dog and I can do what I want. And you painted like this aspirational setting for the person with the kids hanging off them or anyone else that's to say like, we don't need to be surrounded by people to be happy. And there are many different ways that life can look great later in life or really at any stage in life. Yeah, it was that was interesting too. I mean, Sarah, Sarah has a job that she loves, which is working at a museum and has a place to live that she loves and she's lived in for years and she loves the natural world around her and she has this wonderful dog. So she has friends, she has a job and and she has a daughter and a son. So she's very well taken care of by by the world around her. Yeah. I feel like, you know, this might have deeper roots and sort of the societal construct of needing a ma- like you could take this to a whole feminist place if you wanted, but it you know at the least it makes a beautiful setting and a sense of place and all of that. Where so you were inspired by people in your world, you saw this happening. 
what happens for you? Because you are not a new author, right? You have a gift of, you know, you can take different scenes and you've been writing. And I want to hear about how you even got into writing to begin with. But when you come, when you have that spark of an idea, how, what is the journey from, oh, maybe I should write about this to this book coming out? Like when, what happens next? So really when I write a novel, it's because I've seen or heard something, some, something has gotten into me that is kind of troubling to me, something I can't understand or I can't, I can't lay it to rest. It's something that just stays inside making trouble. And each of my novels has this kind of germ, something that bothers me, that troubles me. And, and with this book, I started seeing, I remember years ago meeting a couple in Maine at some fundraiser and they were in, I think they were in their 80s. And it became clear that they were a couple, but I knew that he was Mr. McMillan and she was Mrs. Sherman. And and I <laughs> and I was really shocked. You know, there were these dignified, gray-haired people, and they were living in sin. And I said, "So, do you two are are?" And he said, he nodded. He said, "We live in sin. We're not married." And it was really surprising. And but they seemed, you know, very happy. And they said, you know, our finances are settled. Our kids would be upset if we got married and changed all the legal things. And so we just lived together. And and I thought, well, why not? That seems very sensible. But it was really a departure for that kind of person to challenge the norms of society so drastically and to be so happy about it. And it seemed to be minded. <laughs> And then, so I thought that was really interesting. That was a shift that was going to happen. And really, the the two big reasons, practical reasons for marriage, are protecting the children and protecting the inheritance, whatever that is. So that legal commitment is, you know, to make sure that the family money passes on to children and the children are protected, apart from the emotional parts. So these two people didn't have any reason, practical reasons to get married. And then I just started watching people around me. And I, I knew something like three couples in New York who would not give up their own apartments. They would move, you know, sometimes they'd stay at his apartment, sometimes, they, but they would not give up um, their own apartments. And that's not something you do in your 20s, really. You want to be together all the time and you do. So I was just seeing so many different ways of dealing with romance, which was certainly still there. And I remember also seeing this was a, a number of years ago. I was at a party in Boston at a, at a club, also very dignified. And I met this woman who was in her gray haired in her eighties. And she had this beaming expression on her face. And she said, right over there in that corner is where Bill was standing when I fell in love with him. And I said, Oh, that's so wonderful. When was that? And she said, three years ago. And I <laughs> You know, and they were married and they'd been married for three years and they were very happy. So I, I was just getting signals that there was a lot more that I hadn't paid attention to and that was that was happening around me. So that's how this all started. And then do you start taking notes or how do you turn that into the manuscript? Do you just start writing? Do you outline? Like, what does the process look like for you? No outlines, no notes. The only way I can write something is to write my way through it. And I I may have a sense of where it's going, but it always changes. So I don't, I, with my first book, I try, my husband was a lawyer and I first showed him the draft of my first novel, or I told him I was writing it. And he said, have you made an outline? 
And I said, no, do you think, do you think I should make an outline? And he said, well, I would make an outline if I were writing a novel. I thought he's right. I should make an outline. I should say, write down every chapter and what happens in it. So I did that. I felt really good about myself. I accomplished something. And then I started writing it, but nobody would do what they were meant to. And the- <laughs> They wouldn't say what I had planned them to say, and they wouldn't do anything. So I gave up the outline because for me, it is really an organic process. And I start out with a problem and a set of characters, and their task is to move through that problem and resolve it in whatever ways they can. But I can't, what I what I need to do, the only the only preparation I will do is I will often write little tiny biographies of the characters. When they were born, what color their eyes are, where they grew up, what their parents were like, so that I know that character very well. And so that character is consistent throughout the book. This is somebody who's very ambitious and who is impatient and doesn't ever let you finish your sentences. This is somebody who grew up in the country and it's really uncomfortable in the city. So that person, I know that person before I start writing. So I don't end up like Flaubert saying that Emma's eyes are blue on one page and brown on another page, which fascinates all of us. So I I need to know the character very well and what kind of actions and what kind of behavior that character will will deliver during the book. So that's the only thing I do so that that those the characters are consistent throughout. But other than that, I just start writing. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. And tell me about how you originally 
got started and how you've kept writing novels a career with your teaching and everything else. Like, just how do you how do you do that? <laughs> and how did you get started? I think, I mean, I started writing when everybody else does in first grade. It's just, I never stopped. I always loved writing. It was something that was, that made me happy that I could do. And, and it was something that, that worked for me. I studied it in college. I studied with Bernard Malamud at Bennington. And after college, I went to work in New York and worked for Sotheby's, which I loved. And I, that's where I became interested in American art, and which I still write about. And that's why I wrote the biography of Georgia O'Keeffe, because I became so interested in American art. But while I was working at Sotheby's and another gallery, too, I was always writing fiction. And I was trying to get my fiction published. That was really my my goal, rather than writing nonfiction, writing art history, which I also did. And then finally, I started publishing. And it's just, you know, as every writer knows, it's just a lot of rejection. You write something and it gets turned down and you write something else and that gets turned down too. <laughs> but you you just, and I can't tell you how many times I quit writing. Many, many, many times. <laughs> okay, if they don't want this story, they don't deserve any more stories from me. I'm not writing stories anymore. And that that made me feel very good. I would quit. <laughs> then I would think of something I wanted to write about. And so I'd write about that. <laughs> it was just something... You know, and all writing students need to remember, it's just there's a lot of rejection. You can't depend on the world to love your work. You have to depend on yourself to love your work. You have to love what you're doing. So that's how it was. Wow. But when you were doing these pretend quitting things. They weren't pretend. They weren't pretend? Oh, no. You you meant it. I was really. Okay. Okay. (laughs) How long would it last? Yeah, maybe a week. Okay. So funny. (laughs) When you went back to it, did you try something new? Like when you were mad about the stories where you're like, okay, this time I'm going to try blah, blah, blah. No, same thing. I got enough positive feedback so that I knew that people were interested in what I was doing. And, you know, it was, I always wrote about the things that really, that really gripped me. And they were always about personal relationships and they were always about, you know, intimate connections that went wrong and that had to be resolved. And those things kept coming in my life. I kept seeing them or, or experiencing them and I had to set them down. So I just had to do it. Are there any of your past works that you're like, that you look back on now and you're like, oh, I wish I had changed this about that or, you know, that you have any second thoughts about or, or that you're like, I hope I could ever do a good, as good a job as that one. (laughs) I never read my stuff again. I would never look at it. It would probably horrify me. (laughs) I mean, I probably would think, oh, that sentence is bad. On the other hand, when I write, I'm so obsessive. I write every par I start, you know, a new file, which is a new chapter. And so every time I open that chapter, I reread the opening char- paragraph. So that opening, the opening page of every chapter has probably been rewritten a hundred times. Every time I have to go through that. No, this word is too heavy right there. That I have to change that to a two-syllable word instead of a three-syllable word. So I I everything gets sort of combed through for the tangles. It takes me a long time to get out the tangles. So that's how I function. Mm. If I went back, there would be some words, but also, you know, my toes would probably curl. I'd probably think that (laughs) this is a stupid scene or I shouldn't put it in. When my O'Keeffe book, my O'Keeffe book was published first by Harper and Rowe, which was bought by Harper Collins, and then it moved to um, University Press of New England. And then they went 
defunct. And another publisher asked me if they could publish it. And I said, sure. And she said, is there anything you want to change or is there anything you want to add? And I thought, yeah, that book I wrote sort of in the thick of feminism. And it, it's a, there are a lot of feminist passages in it, which I wouldn't put in today. It's not, I'm not embarrassed by them, but I, I could take them out. And I started reading it and I thought, <laughs> I, change anything. I would change everything. I would start saying this paragraph should come before that. So I said, I, I wrote a foreword and I added some letters that had never been published before. So we added new material, but I couldn't go back and start and start editing. It would drive me crazy. <laughs> and I, I never reread my, my work at all. Interesting. So how long does a typical book take you? How long did leaving take you to write? It's probably the shortest time I've ever spent on a novel. My first novel took me seven years. The O'Keefe book also took a very short time because there were other people writing the same book. And my editor told me that I had to be first. (laughs) I had a gun to my head. And and so if if he hadn't said that, I would still be writing that book. I would still be (laughs) finding more material. But the other books... Often because um, a book turns out to include material that I don't know about and have to do a lot of research. When I wrote Cost, which I thought was going to be very short, I thought it was going to be, it's about a two-week vacation in Maine, three generations of a family. And I thought it was going to be very kind of intense and, and short and just about those people in that place at that time. And it turned out that one of them was a heroin addict. So all of a sudden, I had to learn about the entire world of addiction. I had to talk to heroin addicts. I had to talk to policemen. I had to talk to interventionists and doctors and go to meetings and meet heroin addicts and learn a whole world that I did not know anything about. And the same about my book about Sparta, which is about a Marine lieutenant coming home from Iraq. So I had to learn about Marines, the military, what it was like to be in Iraq, what the Humvees were like inside, everything. So those books took me like five years each. This book, I didn't have to do any research for. So I think it took me three years. Wow. And have you started your next book? Yeah. Can you say anything about it? I have found, and a lot of, I think a lot of fiction writers feel this too. If you talk about a book while you're writing it, you lose the intensity that fuels the writing. So I did, I remember early on telling a friend of mine what was going to happen in a book. And I said, and and he, he says this amazing thing. And she says, I can't believe you said that. And they, and then, and I told her the whole scene. And then I got back home the next day and I thought, this is a really boring scene because I had told, I had used up all the energy that I had on that scene by telling it. And it was no longer inside me to put down on the page. Interesting. So I never talk about the book while I'm writing it. And also, so there's that. I know it's it's like those indoor, those winter tennis bubbles that depend on keeping the air pumped up. If you let the air out slowly, the whole thing just collapses. So I don't ever let the air out while I'm working on it. And the other thing is that for me, when I'm working on the book and even the first person who reads it, it's like a cake that's not quite baked. It's still kind of, mm-hmm. you know, rising up and down. It's it's very, very susceptible to any touch. So if any, if I were to tell you what this new book is about and I saw you frown, I would think it's a really stupid idea. I shouldn't have started this book. That's a bad 
bad idea. So any response at all, it has way too much weight for me when I'm writing the book and when I first show it to somebody. It's very, I mean, if my agent says, you should, you know, we, well, anything my agent says, I listen to, but you're just, I am very, very vulnerable when it's not quite finished. I don't want to hear anybody's comment because it will have an enormous amount of weight. And I, I don't, I, I need to finish it by myself before I show it to anyone. Wow. I'm working on a new book myself, but before I started writing, I was like, running different ideas past people to get a temperature check. Like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? How about this? And I found very quickly that like one idea was just like way too dark. And people were like, no. I'm like, it still would have been fun to write. But like, if nobody wants to read it at all, like I could just do that off on my own. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. So I, I do a little more market testing, I guess. But once I get, once I'm getting into it, I'll probably wait. But I don't know. Maybe I don't have as much air in there to begin with. <laughs> well, you pump the air up yourself. that's funny the thing is that talking to your friends about it and saying what do you think about this idea you can't give the idea the amount of weight that you would in the when you actually write it so you're asking them for their opinion on a shorthand thing that they can't possibly know they can't possibly understand how you're going to really present it in the book yes that's true you're giving that you're giving them too much too much power much power well i also feel like sometimes by asking it, like if I know what I'm wearing looks good, I'm not going to ask five people for how does it look, right? Right. So if I'm asking people, it's probably not the right thing anyway, right? Like I finally arrived at what I'm doing and I don't need to ask anybody about it. Like, but I feel like it's part of how I do it at least. Like, I I guess I need to know that there's something wrong with, I I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. If I'm like, well, what do you think? Then it's probably bad. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> it drives you, then you should write it. Yeah. It's, you know, that's one way to look. Yeah. Very true. And tell me more about your teaching and how the teaching sort of intersects with the writing and all of that and what you've learned from being a teacher yourself. I teach my main teaching. I mean, sometimes I teach at a conference or something, but I teach at a hunter in the MFA program. Uh, So it's all writers. And I teach a lit class, actually. It's not a writing class, which is so much fun. And we read Madame Bovary, Anna Karenina, Chekhov, To the Lighthouse. What else? Then there's always one other book that, that I put in at the end. But we read these great, great books. And the students have mostly never read them before and they want to read them in a group. So there's this wonderful sense of discovery and people will say, I really wanted to meet, read Madame Bovary or I really wanted to read Anna Karenina, but I knew I'd never get around to reading it myself. And it's such a delight to read that book. It's everyone loves reading it and it's, it's so absorbing. You get so involved with the characters and the two love stories that are at the heart of it. And you get so involved by Tolstoy's vision, which is vast. I mean, he's trying to figure out how to deal with the Russian continent as well as his own love life. So it's a feast. And I love the students and they bring me stories. They have to write one paper, sometimes two, and they can write creative stories in response to the books we've read. And so they tell me stories that I would never have thought of in relation to this, uh, these books. So it's it's really a great pleasure for me. Amazing. What are you reading now for fun? Um, 
For fun, I'm reading the, uh, I'm just going to start the, well, I just read Anne Enright's wonderful new book, The Ran, The Ran. I love her writing. And I'm going to start reading the Slow Horses series, which are English sort of detective stories that have been made into a TV series called Slow Horses. So those are really fun. Amazing. I know you've already given advice, but if you had any more parting advice for aspiring authors, what would it be? Um, Trust yourself. If it's interesting to you, it will be interesting to your readers. Write what excites you the most, what frightens you the most. Really, the reason that I write books is because I'm disturbed by something. I'm troubled by something, and I can't get it out of my head. And so the way I write about it is to set it down on paper. So write about um, the things that trouble you the most. And trust yourself. Trust that your ideas are important. Forget about the world. Forget about that devil on your shoulder, which is telling you that it's no good and no one will want it. If you want it, it's good. So just write what you what you need to write. I love that. Did you have any other titles for leaving or was it always leaving? I did have another t- title for it. I wanted to call it The Other Life. Mm, that's good too. Amazing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Nothing. It's just that people thought that 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 was that would suggest some kind of spiritual, mm-hmm. which it isn't. But anyway, but leaving is good. Leaving is great. Great title, Roxana. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And again, your writing is so phenomenal, and the book is beautiful. So congratulations. Thanks for having me. I, feel, I hope you feel better. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 